Hey out there, I'm John, and welcome to Talk About That. Today is going to be a very special edition of the podcast that uh, is going to take a different direction than we've ever taken before and probably that we'll ever take again. This past week, Johnny and I lost a dear friend uh, who was a young man named Weston Gray, and we had spent 14 years together as friends in various aspects of ministry since he was a kid and, and as an adult as well, and we lost him tragically this week, and so our entire community and friend group and lots of people from our history and lots of people from our present. We've all just been devastated. It's been one of the hardest weeks of our lives. And so in this moment, uh, we had this this idea uh, that it would be disingenuous. And that's one of the reasons we're doing this today to, and hard, almost impossible for us to really talk about anything else right now. Um, and we will, we will again soon. But, but in this moment, we really wanted to stop. And I'll give you a couple of reasons what, why we're going to do what we're going to do today, then I'll explain it. Number one, and Johnny, by the way, is not with me today, so he's on the road, but but we talked about this. And one, we just want to honor Weston. We'd like to tell you who he was and uh, if you didn't know him, why you would have loved him and, and, and tell maybe some funny stories and different things you're going to hear later on in the podcast about this young man. And I'm sure if you didn't know him, there would be things about him you can relate to others with. And um, You know, we don't care about how many downloads or subscribers and things like that that we get. So we certainly are not uh, making a moment out of this tragedy uh, for any sort of gain. But we do care about those who have lost a friend this week and and maybe other friends out there, maybe someone you've lost that we don't even know your story or what's going on. So we want to to be real in those moments and uh, and to share those moments together. And so uh, we, we want to comfort our friends and comfort Weston's family uh, by honoring him and talking about how his life matters and, and what matters to all of us in this life. And so another reason is, you know, we started this podcast to share some very specific things. We wanted to share life and just sit around a table and, and talk as we would with our friends. And as we do, we have very specific things we wanted to talk about in life and faith. And so In what's to come here, I share directly in this very difficult and honestly, probably the most difficult moment of my life up to now, uh, to share some of those things directly in a way that, uh, you know, hopefully brought comfort and brought clarity to our lives. And, uh, you know, it was just a hard moment, but we tried to be honest and real. And, you know, of course, lastly, we, we want you to to enjoy the life of our friend Weston. And uh, if you keep listening through what I'm going to say today, I really address some of those issues we've been talking about on the podcast, like cynicism and community and being there for each other in these real moments, um, being there for each other in every moment. And so what we're going to do is, is I'm just going to take us straight into um, an audio clip of the what I delivered at Weston's memorial and celebration service uh, this past week. And so Again, very different than what we normally do, and we appreciate you guys listening, and uh, hopefully you'll give this a chance and, and take a listen, and we'll be back next week with what we normally do. But for today, we want to just take a moment and honor Weston, comfort our friends, and uh, and talk about what life is really all about. So thank you for listening, and we appreciate it. We miss our friend. We're here today. To celebrate the life of Weston Gray. Weston was a dear friend to many of us, and he was a dear friend to me. He was a complex young man, as anyone who knows him can attest. He and I gathered at our favorite breakfast destination, which was Cracker Barrel, 
literally more times. This is not a cliche, literally more times than I could ever count over the years. And in those many long conversations, his complexities would present themselves. The first one was that Weston was an adventurer. Having parents who loved him so dearly and wanted him to experience all that life had to offer, Weston was more well-traveled at the age of 15 than most of us are in our lifetimes. He had been so many places, set foot on so many continents, experienced so many adventures that he exuded a sense of capability and confidence, especially when it came to travel. His dad taught him this, and it showed when he became the road manager for his dearest friend's band. More times than I can count, he would be at the agreed departure location earlier than everyone else, checking the oil in some old van, hooking up the trailer, affixing magnetic bullhorns or possibly this weird little punching doll he named June to the hood of the van just so his friends would laugh and have something to remember the trip by. He was ready to launch into wild adventures with his friends at home, overseas. He didn't care. He just wanted to be on the move with those whom he cared about. Which brings me to the second complexity of my friend Weston. He was a loyal friend. As much as any student I've ever had the honor of knowing, Weston Gray remembered and treasured every single memory we ever experienced together, and he loved to relive them. He probably heard me deliver over 300 sermons in the time we were friends. After you've done what I do for as long as I have done it, you begin to lose that delusion that people are actually listening to what you're saying, or much less that they will remember it later. Just to prove the point, there have been many times that I have asked students who have walked through this just to prove that walking through faith is more than just sitting through sermons. Just to remember one sermon that they've heard over the course of six to ten years. Or maybe just one point from something I said. And it is staggering how little is retained. But when I would sit down with Weston, he would rattle off things that I had forgotten long ago. Things that I could not remember from ten, almost fifteen years ago. Something that Johnny had said. Something that I had said that... He took to heart. And especially if I had said something wrong or something embarrassing. He really loved to relive those moments. I think he internalized things and he took them to heart. And then he wrestled with them. And sometimes I think that wrestling match was an all-out brawl inside of him. But even in those moments, he loved those around him. And he wanted to serve them. And he often helped me transcribe long interviews for some book I was writing or pursuing. And then he wanted to sit down and talk about what he was helping with. He just wanted to go somewhere together. Just ask his best friends in the old van with the bullhorns or June on the hood. He would rarely let anyone else drive. No matter how long the trip was, and even if he had to drive all night, as Johnny said. He was loyal, fiercely loving his family and friends. And even when the people whom he loved were at odds with one another, Weston would love everybody. The best he could. Now, you might be upset with Weston for something in your life. I would imagine most everyone who knew him, even if you sometimes were irritated by him, as I've heard from most of you, you probably would say that you and Weston were doing good. You were okay. Because he just stayed loyal no matter what. But it didn't stop there. The next complexity of my friend Weston was that he was a servant. Don't get me wrong. We often think of the word servant as somebody who is mild, meek, and docile, this was not Weston. He loved to banter, even to be cantankerous. 
And sometimes for no other reason except just to be so for the fun of it. He wanted to sit and debate the depths of the universe with me. But the thing was, it was always with a profound sense of respect, even affection. Weston had a unique ability to completely disagree with you, even say something humorously inappropriate while doing so, but while doing it to also somehow be affectionate. I've never known anyone like him, someone who was genuinely, disagreeably affectionate. But this was just another one of the ways that he served you. He had a harder time letting you serve him back. He hated to be trouble or to be a bother, even feeling that needing others sometimes was a weakness. We talked about that many times. But this deeply held feeling seemed to haunt him, even while he was taking care of other people. Perhaps that's why he was also just a tad bit competitive. Actually, Weston was the most competitive person I've ever met in my life. When he was a kid, and I mean like an older teenager, 16 or 17, on more than one occasion, I had to pull him to the side while we were at camp and cool him down because our team had lost some epic indoor dodgeball, always dodgeball, dodgeball game with another team. And in that moment, this well-traveled, well-rounded, servant-hearted, brilliant, ruddy, and good-looking young man with the world by the tail would all but be wearing blue war paint like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. I think he may have actually put paint on his face a few times. And I would try to remind him that it was just a 10-minute dodgeball game against innocent middle school girls. (laughs) For whom he was now planning nefarious late-night pranks of swift and severe revenge. And I would be gentle, and sometimes I would be less than gentle. After all, he was one of my little brothers, and we both knew it. And even when I was being less than gentle, he loved it. He loved me. Even in our hardest moments, he had a charm. If you know him, you know what I mean. You could be so mad at him, yet still feel yourself under his charm. And it wasn't fake, it was real. Even so, it could take 12 to 24 hours for him to climb back down from his emotional volcano after a dodgeball game or Tennessee's latest inexplicable loss on the football field. For any of you who know what fine arts was, whoever went on a fine arts trip with Weston, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He was a talented drummer, and this guy's Johnny says, so funny, we didn't know what each other was going to say. He hated to lose. That was in mine, too. Even though technically the program really tried to avoid declaring anyone a loser, try telling that to Weston. I think it was in Indianapolis maybe that not after not advancing to the next round of Christian band performances, we were unable to pry him from his chair in his hotel room. He sat there for like 12 hours with a little plastic cup in one hand and a bottle of Pepsi, his cola of choice, in the other He would pour tiny amounts into the cup and he would shoot it while maintaining like this Clint Eastwood expression. And I think he had Johnny Cash or George Jones or somebody playing in the background and he fully committed to this state of being in that chair for like half a day. Which leads me to another complexity of my friend Weston. He was stubborn. And I do not say this at all to dishonor him. His stubbornness often served him very well in the form of tenacity You see, he was kind of smarter than most of us. He made a 32 in the ACT. And let me tell you, after finding out that he beat my ACT score, which was back when Abraham Lincoln was president, so I'm not even sure that they were using the same scale or system, he brought it up every single time at Cracker Barrel. (laughs) Lovingly, affectionately, and stubbornly. 
And yes, that stubbornness often helped him stick with things. We traveled together overseas on many missions trips. And having Weston was always an incredible asset because he was an extremely capable and hardworking laborer. Give him a dirty job that no one else could get done and he was on it. And you could count on him to finish it and to finish it well. This was his element taking on projects that helped him express his loyalty to the people he cared for. Many times he served widows and orphans. Many times he served the mentally ill in Knoxville where he worked for Agape Outreach Homes. He genuinely loved, quote, the guys, as he often called the men who lived there. He loved talking about them. It was this tenacity, this stubbornness that served him well. But it also got him into a little bit of trouble sometimes. Once on the longest and hardest trip of my ministry that will live in folklore, National Fine Arts in Orlando in 2006, we were on a hot bus that seemed like it would never get through a 400-mile construction zone when Weston stubbornly decided to begin yelling, Orange Barrels. Incessantly. At first we laughed. 397 miles later, guess who was still yelling orange barrels? Weston. Once when we were in Panama on a mountain in an Indian village building a school, we'd all been sick, filtering our own water and bathing in the river. We were coming down into this village. When you're on the mission field, you generally don't do things like this, but there was a random donkey that was just there. Weston took it upon himself to mount the donkey. We did not have the owner's permission. Don't even know who the owner was, to be honest. And he began, that you saw one of the pictures, the picture where he's kind of making that face. It was as if like he was Pancho Villa inspecting the troops. And he just made this face and he committed to it for like 20 minutes. We all took these pictures, just Weston riding around on a random donkey. You see, I love Weston. And I know you do too. I know we are hurting today. And I want to echo Brandon's words of wisdom and comfort to Weston's dear family. And we cannot take away this pain. But we can sit with you in it. When moments of death come near, and they always do, the thought of encouraging each other, as Scripture tells us to do, it seems kind of foreign. You see, we do not encourage one another because we are not sad. Even Christ wept over the pain and loss of his dear friend Lazarus. The loss is real and it's painful. And it's the absolute right thing to mourn, to grieve, and to reflect, and to allow tears and sorrow to be felt. Romans 15, 15 reminds us to rejoice with those who rejoice, and to mourn with those who mourn. So today we feel sadness and loss, but we most definitely do not feel it alone. We feel it together. Every prayer lifted for one another, every meal made for one another, every encouraging word shared, Christ wants us to share both rejoicing as well as weeping together. So I celebrate the life of Weston with you today, but I also weep with you today. For all of us, today I've shared some memories and reflections about my friend Weston. But his parents and those who care about him want us to acknowledge that while we can celebrate his life, there is a great tragedy because we're standing here today. It is a tragedy that we can't just gloss over. We can't laugh it off. We can't drink it away. We can't jump on a plane and get away from it. It's here. And we need to feel it. And we need to address it. So hear me now. Whatever you may think of funeral speakers or preachers or ceremonies, I refuse to be quippable. I refuse to be the life lesson giving guy 
in this moment because I am devastated. And my heart is broken in a way I never knew it could be. And this is my friend whom I loved. And this was not what any of us wanted for him. We all have our ways of coping and communicating. Some will use cliches about life being short and precious. Some will quote scriptures. Some will bake casseroles. Some will be angry and retreat into themselves. Some will cuss up a storm while others will peruse old pictures and cry. To be honest, I've done all of these things this week, except maybe the casserole. But I'm asking you to do what my friend Weston often did as if we're all sitting at Cracker Barrel for a moment. To just listen to what I'm going to say. And like him, you may not always agree with it. But I'm asking you to maybe somewhere down the road remember it. It might not hit today, but will you remember it and maybe access it later when the moment has passed us by. What I'm not going to do is to make this moment black and white. There are black and white components to it. This is life and death. This is tragedy and aftermath. There is a right and a wrong. But Christ did not just deal with black and white truths by sending a direct, sternly worded, and very true message to all the people who needed to hear it. Instead, he sent himself. Putting on a body just like theirs and ours, feeling our pain and our tiredness and our profound sense of loss. He felt our weakness. The scripture tells us he did this so he could sympathize with us in those weaknesses. John says repeatedly that he did not come to condemn us, but to love us and to offer us hope, even though we deserve to be condemned. So I won't condemn even as I speak comfort and truth, both of which we need to hear today, because I'm angry. I'm very angry, but this anger does not have to miss its mark. Which is why scripture says to be angry, but to not sin in it. Sin literally means missing a target. That's what the original word means. So there is a stigma to the word sin, and there should be, because sin is serious enough business that Christ laid down his life to free us from it. But at its root, it means missing a target. So I'm angry, but I don't want to miss the target today. So what is the target? Although he shared less and less with me over the past several years, often working night shifts or living out of town in Knoxville, when we did hang out, Weston would share some of his struggles with understanding the target. What was it really? And honestly, I spent so much of my own life, even as a minister, struggling to know what the target is. You see, I'm a recovering Pharisee, one who has put his confidence many times in his own abilities to make himself better. I gave Weston a hard time about his stubborn unwillingness to be weak and let someone serve him in return, but I've done the same thing. And honestly, I believe that this quarter turn in our understanding is the target that we are missing. We think we know, all of us, young and old, for good or for bad, that what this whole Christianity thing is all about. We think we have it under control. Because we serve in ministry or we give consistently or we attend church. Maybe we even lead like I do. Or we think that we can confidently abandon it. Or keep our safe distance from this whole Jesus thing because we've seen behind the curtain. We've experienced the hypocrisy. We've tried hard and it didn't work so it must be a sham. We all think we haven't figured out even if we don't say it quite like that. 
But if we do have it figured out, then why are we standing here today? We can outcry about society these days or kids these days or the media these days or the church these days or parents these days or pastors these days. And maybe some of those or all of those have their own merits. But what about me? What about you? And what about these days that we have right now? What if I told you that God has something better for all of us? Something better than what we're facing today? He'd probably dismiss me as a motivational speaker or a religious fanatic. Or someone who is finally saying what, quote, that person over there really needs to hear. And you may just miss the target today. I think the target is actually pretty simple. It begins with something you either don't want to hear or think you already completely know and have heard. That the real message of Christ begins not with loving others well. But first being loved well by Christ. Whatever you think that means, throw it away. If there's ever a moment to do so, it's now. It's here. What else matters? You see, we boil Christianity down to doing good deeds that show how much we are changing our lives and loving others, and it just doesn't work. It isn't working. First John shows us that quarter turn that will lead us to the target. He says this, we love because he first loved us. In fact, we live our lives, especially if you're religious and maybe you're not, but if you are, then you live your lives thinking that there are only two commandments for us to live by in the New Testament, loving God with all of our hearts and our minds and our souls and our strength and then loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. But that's not really true. When Jesus said those two things, it was an answer to a question that someone asked him about what are the greatest commandments from the Old Testament. But when Jesus spoke to his disciples, he said this, I give you a new commandment. It was to love each other as I have loved you. So you think about it. If we live loving each other as we love ourselves, then we're not loving each other very well. Because I really don't like myself that much on most days, much less love myself. So the key is understanding how I am loved and valued by Christ first. And for some reason, that is the hardest thing for us to crawl over. It sounds so simple, but... Even when I say it, I sound like some preacher speaking rhetoric and I want to resist it fiercely or dismiss it or I want to convince myself that God must require me to do more in order to acquire his affection and his love. And we say things like, don't just come to God when you're in trouble, which means that we think honestly that there are moments in this life that we're not in trouble, that we think there's moments in life that we're not broken. We think that we're holding it together even when we're falling apart. We opt instead to do better works, give more money, or maybe escape the whole God conversation altogether so we can chase and find a fulfilled life in our friendships or marriages or families or accomplishments. But as today tragically reminds us, it doesn't work either. It really begins with this. Will you let God love you well? Will you accept a radical grace where you are valued just as much as his favorite son, Jesus, is? You see, as Weston knew, and as my daughter knows, only children get to be called favorites by their parents. And all of you with multiple children can't do that. Well, you shouldn't do that. But that's who Jesus is. He's God's favorite, only begotten son. 
And if you trust him enough to let him love you well, then you can be confident that you are in him is how the Bible says, which means you are now also God's favorite. And if that sounds kooky to you, then let me ask you, are all of our other self-righteous, do good deeds or abandoned faith altogether ways really working? Is it working out for us? You see, Christ loves you. And I'm only beginning at this point in my life to let him love me better and well. And it has transformed me in ways that all of my efforts and disciplines never could. Something actually supernatural is happening in my life. And it turns out that was the simple target the whole time. And I complicated it. I'm very sorry that I did. But we can change. If we can open up our ears and hear old words in fresh ways. God wants an incredibly full and fulfilling life for his children as any good father does. He's not trying to rip you off. He's trying to set you free. There is no change required to come except the change in belief that Christ really loves you and can be trusted because you can't change yourself anyway. Believe me, I've tried. But if I will let Christ love me first, all of my ugly, foolish, messy, shameful, angry, lustful, vengeful, dishonest, shady self, if I will stop thinking that these things separate me from him and stop trying to trust God for heaven, but trust myself for this earth, then I could begin to experience the life here that he really desires for me because I can trust him in honesty with no strings attached. The real message of Christ begins not with knowing something, but with being known. I used to want to be well known. Today, I just want to be known well. John Calvin said what would surprise many of us to hear. He said that without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And he went on to say that without knowledge of God, there's no knowledge of self. You see, I need some knowledge of myself in order to allow myself to be known. And I need help seeing it and seeing myself for who I really am, not just who I think myself to be. Have you ever heard yourself speaking on a recording or in a video? And you turn to your friend and you say, I don't really sound like that, do I? You do. But you can't hear from within your body what your voice actually sounds like on the outside. Without an outside perspective, you can't truly know yourself. That is why we must seek to know ourselves, but also be willing to let ourselves be known. Is that not what David prayed when he asked God to search him and know him? God already knew David, but David wanted to know more about himself as well. You see, we think our know of selves, but can we really? Can we open our hearts to hearing other perspectives other than our own? If so, hear me now. The real message of Christ begins with being rescued daily. Not rescuing yourself or others by never making a mistake, never enjoying life, never feeling that you can be pleasing enough to God or others. If you start there, you will never reach where you should be starting. By just allowing yourself to accept rescue in your weakness. The scripture says our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, I'm waiting every day for my savior to rescue me today. I need to be rescued, tended to, and held up. So do you. We can believe this and walk it out together in honesty. Or we can just watch our friends, family, and city suffer and not change and feel alone and keep telling ourselves that we're all doing what God wants. We can feel the hopelessness of mental illness or we can deny it altogether or we can embrace the ones we love 
As we walk through these shadowy valleys together, medically, relationally, spiritually, honestly, messily, not dismissively, but humbly. I'm not saying that any of us could have prevented this moment. I'm merely saying that God's love has better moments for all of us ahead. That it begins by believing the worth and value that each of us has because of God's first love for us, not our love for him. And for my friend, on his behalf, let me plead with you. Cynicism is destructive and it's killing us. I'm not talking about an honest search for truth. I'm talking about a mindset that no longer hears multiple sides of the discussion for truth but rather resigns itself above all else to trust in the doubt of life, faith, and relationships, and hope. We are so afraid of religious words or being lumped in with bald old preachers like me or fake Christians that we literally run from the very message, not the incorrect form of it, that yes, we should be running from, but the real message that can actually rescue us. The real message that can actually rescue us. We may even go as far to disclaim that there is a God at all who is in control or can be trusted. And this doubt, it doesn't separate us. It doesn't separate you from the rest of us. Along with David and the Bible and countless others, we've all questioned this. We've all questioned, especially in our darkest moments, but even here as we ourselves make these bold decisions based upon our own experiences that God either is not real or cannot be trusted, we miss the fact that by doing so, we're still acknowledging that there is someone who is ultimately in control and he can be trusted. It's ourselves. Or perhaps ourselves combined with our friends in denying that there is such a thing as a deity or one with a desire to rescue us, we proclaim ourselves to be that deity because we are saying that we have the power to make sweeping conclusions about the mysteries of life and the universe and that ultimately we can be trusted to rescue ourselves. If you demand that I show you the purpose in this tragedy to rescue others, if you demand a purpose within God's grace, then I as a broken, grieving man will humbly request that you show me in return the purpose in this tragedy outside of God's grace. We shudder at the thought of blind faith, which is not at all what Christ wants from us anyway, but we believe that it is somehow. So we begin trusting an anti-everything mindset. If we hear anything, we look for its hidden false door underneath the platform of religiosity, its angle, its shadowy, hidden, nefarious, self-serving reality. Even when there's light, we choose instead to focus on the shadows it produces as if there cannot be a light and a shadow in the same place, even though by definition there must be. As one of my favorite songwriters, John Foreman, penned, the shadow proves the sunshine. But honestly, we choose to believe that everything is fake, wrong, and should be distrusted to the point that over time, we really have no real evidence for swallowing such a viewpoint about everything, hook, line, and sinker. No evidence, that is, besides our own limited experiences. The irony of this is that believing something for little to no reason is the very definition of blind faith. The blind faith we claim that we are avoiding. We put more faith in cynicism than most people put in God. Even though we have moments of happiness, we're not fulfilled. You see, moments of happiness can happen, and they do happen outside of a relationship with God. And believe it or not, these are gifts from him, which is what the book of James says. It says, every good and perfect gift comes down from God. So you may not trust scriptures, but humor me. 
If God is real and if he really loves us, then that means every good thing that the religious and the godless alike will experience today is by definition godly. There was another scripture that Christians like me love to quote, and I usually use it to talk about those who are religious. And it says that we can have a form of godliness but deny its power. We tend to only use that verse for the self-righteous. But if every good thing... If every moment on your deck with your friends, if every coup of your baby, if every delicious meal and glass of wine over candlelight with your husband or wife, if every good thing is godly, then every good thing is a form of godliness. So your relationships with your friends are a gift from God. Enjoy them, relish them, cherish them while they last, but don't trust these good things alone to rescue you. Have them. But don't deny each other the power that is supposed to reside with our friendships that actually rescues us. Don't have a form of godliness, but deny its power to change your life. Those relationships we have are supposed to help us sustain and remember and lean into that power, but they can't be this power. What is the power? Scripture says it's found in believing and living together this real message of allowing Christ to know you, to love you, and to rescue you. Some might call that the gospel. And not just to let that happen once, but every day. I wanted my friend Weston to experience the fullness of that message in his life. To know that he was completely loved by God because God had given him worth and value. He didn't have to work to earn. And he did experience that at times. But not in the fullness. Just as I have not experienced it in my life in its fullness either. My friendship with him was not enough. To communicate it to his heart. And I tried. And it helped. And it was good. And it was godly. But we had a form of godliness that ultimately denied some of that power. Which is found in rightly believing that God feels a certain way about you. Despite your many stubborn imperfections. That still he wants to know you. Rescue you and fulfill you. So let me comfort you. And invite you with the lyrics of a song that has comforted me. The lyrics go like this. You take two steps forward and three steps back on a journey of a thousand miles. And you cry and you pray, but you know at this pace you never will arrive. I know in your heart you believed from the start that God had a purpose he knit you together for. But life has pulled at the seams and you're unraveling and you can't hold it together anymore. But God will. He will finish what he started. No thread will be left unwoven. Nothing will be left undone. Every plan and every purpose that he has will be accomplished. And God will finish what he's begun. And it may feel like 40 long days in a hard driving rain or 40 years in a dry desert sand. But when he's finished, we will see a beautiful tapestry and know that nothing has been wasted in the end. I trust God's grace today, even in my brokenness, anger and despair. And that nothing will be wasted in the end. I have hope. Weston's family wanted me to invite you to trust that grace as well. And experience hope in our grief. It's a grace that Weston experienced. And I wish he was still here with me today to experience even more. But you're here now. And they have asked me to just invite you to hear that message of his love for you. And if you want in your heart to come broken and real before God. If you want to open your friendships and relationships and experiences 
cast just what we're living in to something significant, higher and more powerful than yourselves together in true honesty. If you think you are not capable of changing or getting this right, then you are actually exactly in the only place that this can happen in brokenness. So let's respond while it matters. Would you close your eyes? I'm going to pray with us. Jesus, we are heartbroken and we thank you for the hope we have in you. And God, some of these words, my ineffective words, may just seem like a foreign language to so many. It's so hard to hear when we're mourning and angry or guilty. What of those things may be? So God, I don't, I don't suppose, Lord, or, or make the presupposition that everyone's going to remember what has been said. But I do believe that you, like in Weston's heart, remind us of things. So God, I pray if anything is heard that we will hear. That as he was loved by you, so are we. And God, I'm not going to ask people to raise their hands or make a show, God, of a display of these things right now. But Lord, I will. I will ask them in this moment as I pray to let their hearts let you love them well. To say it in their hearts, Jesus, I'm desperate. I'm doubtful. I don't know if I can make it. But if you're real, if you care for me, then will you show me that and I will allow you to do it. If that's you this morning, you just in your heart, maybe with a whisper, if there's ever a time to say this now. Lord, may we not retreat further into the darkness of all of our cynical ways. God, I'm so cynical. I don't want to retreat into that because it's a dead end. It doesn't lead anywhere. Lord, may I in humility come closer to the light instead where I'm loved and known and not run from the very thing that can rescue me. I thank you for Weston's life. I thank you, Lord, that his life had and still has purpose. I thank you, Lord, that you love him and his family and us. I commit to you, Lord, in these moments of grief, all of our relationships, families, friendships, marriages. Lord, may we experience, Lord, not what we think we will, but something better. Would you lead us in it, I pray in Jesus' name. So once again, thanks for joining us on Talk About That today. You know, it was a lot different than what we normally do, but uh, we really hope that you were encouraged and that you'll keep us and our friends and Weston's family in your prayers in the coming days and, and months and years even. And uh, but we, we are glad that we get a chance to live life with him. And so... Uh, Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with a a normal episode of Talk About That very soon. Uh, Other than that, have a great and, and wonderful week. Everyone wants to change the world. Capital Ministries is doing just that, one heart at a time by creating disciples of Jesus Christ among political leaders in the U.S. and foreign nations. For more than 25 years, founder Ralph Drawlinger has written Bible studies specifically for public servants. Study along with us and learn what the Bible says about capitalism, communism, abortion, same-sex marriage, and other contemporary issues. Subscribe and follow us at lifeaudio.com or search Capital Ministries on your favorite podcast platform.